How'd you get into hydrology? Oh, uh, good question. Let me think. Um, I always wanted to work in the environment and I didn't really know what career to focus on. And then I went to New Zealand and I fell in love with volcanoes and rocks and mountains. So I decided to get a geology degree. And about halfway through my geology degree, I realized that the only career options were really like oil and gas or exploration, which I didn't want to do because that's not really environmentally where I wanted to go. Uh, so I ended up getting a second degree in environmental earth sciences along with my geology degree, and I ended up taking a bunch of water classes. And then I uh, had a bunch of summer positions in hydrology, and I just loved it, loved being out on the water. Nice. <laughs> so you really care about the environment. Yes. What drew you to know that hydrology was the thing? Uh, I don't necessarily know if hydrology astrology drew me to know it was the thing as much as that I just loved being outside and doing the field work and technically I am a environmental scientist <laughs> so <laughs> it just goes with it I guess so what do you love about hydrology I just love boating around hanging out in the lakes and chilling so you enjoy being on the lake it seems as if you enjoy the peacefulness of it I do enjoy the peacefulness. Um, we get to go all the way up to northern Saskatchewan where no one else really goes unless they're planning on doing a 12-hour drive or they're paying to go up there. And we get to boat around on these pristine lakes that no one else is on unless they're paying thousands of dollars to have a fisherman guide up there. So <laughs> it's pretty peaceful and no one else is around. And it's nice to just be out in nature in that way. Yeah. How do you feel while you're out there? Uh, it depends on the weather. If it's like a nice, calm, sunny day, I feel extremely peaceful, very at ease, very like amazing, you know, like meditative, just being out there. Um, if it's a windy, stormy day, it's absolute chaos because we have these like blow up Zodiac boats that just bob along and then you're trying to like boat across this lake with three foot waves, <laughs> maybe not three feet, but <laughs> you're getting like smashed by waves and water and it's chaotic and it's kind of scary, but it's also kind of fun. Oh, you enjoy a little bit of the chaos. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> so what are you doing on the lake? Uh, we do water quality mainly. So we go out and we take water quality samples to make sure that mines in the area aren't having an impact on the water in the area. Uh, we also do like water level testing um, to ensure that a lot of mine processes use a lot of water to um, get the ore out. So they use a lot of the lake water. So we make sure that they're not drawing too much of it, which would cause like water levels to drop, which could like all the water in Canada is very interconnected. So if water drops in one lake, it could affect water levels like downstream a few kilometers which could affect wildlife habitats and that sort of thing so you have to check the water levels and the water quality so we do water quality water levels we measure how fast streams are going how fast rivers are flowing that sort of thing how vital is this information it could depend on how much like ideally if the mine is running correctly water levels won't be affected too much um and also like it's hard to tell some years because in Saskatchewan we go through like a series of like really, really wet years and then we'll have really, really dry years that are droughts. You kind of have to figure out if it's the mine that's causing water levels to move up and down or if it's just 
chaotic Saskatchewan weather where one year we have 30 feet of snow or another year where it's dry and we have 5,000 forest fires, you know? Yeah. How do you discern whether it's natural or the mine is doing it? Um, so we would look at climate, basically. We look at the Environment Canada climate um, weather stations throughout Saskatchewan, and we can kind of tell, like, based on that information, if it was a really dry year, if it was a really wet year. Like, say it's a really wet year and there's a ton of precipitation, but for some reason our river is flowing extremely low, then maybe you would have an inkling that something's going on, per se. Or vice versa. Okay, or if it's you have too much water, yeah, but you didn't have any rain, something might be, a, might be yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. So what could be up if there's too much water? <sighs> too much water would be pretty rare, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said vice versa. <laughs> it would be more so like a lack of water, which would be bad. <laughs> I would say majority of people in Saskatchewan would be probably happier if we did have more water. Okay. As the farmers yeah. constantly so the, say. <laughs> so the more water isn't a, an issue? Um, it can be. Generally in northern Saskatchewan, not really. Um, but I used to do a lot of hydrology work in like around the Nipawin area. And sometimes, yeah, um, water levels have been rising a lot in certain areas. And it definitely affects farmers' fields. Like there's farmer fields that have completely flooded out due to excess of water. Just so, from the environment though. Uh, from the environment and like other farmers doing business. <laughs> what do you mean doing business? Uh, I guess sometimes not everyone pays attention to what they're doing on their own property. So maybe like someone would build a trench, which would drain their property, but would flood their neighbor's property, things like that. Or maybe they wanted more water, so they would try to divert, you know, a stream onto their land, which would cause a different farmer's land to not get that water anymore so (laughs) we used to have to go out and be like hey you can't do this (laughs) please stop trying to change the water courses that are naturally flowing through Saskatchewan (laughs) that'd be great so that's not allowed no actually if you want to divert any type of water storage you have to get a permit from the government because it's all set up right like these water courses have been flowing for however many years so if you try and divert one of those you could accidentally flood or drought your neighbor very very easily and it happened well it was happening quite often i don't know if it still is i don't work there anymore but (laughs) (laughs) so by diverting any amount of water it could cause somebody to have a drought or a flood yeah i mean think about it think of the river running through saskatchewan or saskatoon right they dam it it's dammed there's a dam on it um even that slowing down it can affect everything downstream right so if they close the dam That'll stop water. It'll lower the water levels, which they usually do in like the springtime when we have uh, spring runoff, right? Um, Or they'll open the dam and more water will come through. So take that, but just like a smaller scale. Say you have a stream running through your property and then you just decide, hey, I'm going to build a dugout and divert the stream into that dugout, right? Then your dugout's full of water, but the stream is no longer getting water downstream. So now maybe your neighbor downstream doesn't get water anymore. So things like that. It's quite easy to just like change it. <laughs> so you you can just dig a hole on your property and then that'll divert all of it into that hole. The it's dugout. possible. Yeah. If it's running in the right direction. Yeah. yeah. So we used to actually go around with survey equipment. And if a farmer wanted to like remove part of his land, like cut down land, or if he wanted to build it up, we would go out and survey and tell him how much land he could add, like how much dirt he could build up 
or how much dirt they could remove so it wouldn't impact water levels in the area. He knows he has to contact you to do this? Mm, yes. They <laughs> 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 yes. so should be going through <laughs> the government to ask permission to be doing these things. On your own land? If it's affecting a larger body of water, yes. Like, I mean, if you just have a dugout on your property already, I'm sure no one would care if you just made it a little deeper. But like, if you're diverting an actual stream or river it could definitely affect other people <laughs> yeah oh then how do you know how much they can divert or and how how does it work uh like years and years of data basically like they'll have they'll know how high the water levels are like the elevation of the rivers and the elevation of the streams so we would go out and we'd measure the elevation of their land and be like okay like if you took off three I don't know, feet here, this would affect this much because you'd be lowering the land by this much. Oh, so you can extrapolate that data. Yeah. What are you testing for for water quality? Uh, so it de would depend what mine we're at generally because different mines um, use different chemicals for their ore extraction, basically. So like a gold mine would do something different from a uranium mine. Um, but generally we do like a routine suite, which would be like conductivity, pH, uh, nitrate, nitrates, that sort of thing. Uh, we would test for metals, dissolved and total metals to see if any, like, I don't know, selenium or zinc or iron is a big one is going into the water. Uh, what else do we test for? At the uranium uh, uranium mines, we test for radionuclides. We would test for uranium and radium to make sure that none of that's going into the water. Hydrocarbons we could test for. Um, so like all your oil byproducts, that sort of thing. What's this conductivity thing? So conduct specific conductivity is basically um, how salty water can be. Okay. Yeah. The salt. Mm -hmm. So like around potash mines, you would have a specific conductivity, like thousands, right? Because there's so much salt in the water. Well, up north, you really shouldn't have a high specific conductivity at all. So if you're suddenly seeing a huge spike in salts, you'd be like, hmm, maybe something's going on here. <laughs> red flag. Yeah, red flag. <laughs> <laughs> what have you seen while testing that surprised you? Um, I don't know if anything really surprises me, but sometimes in like the really, really deep lakes, you can see some crazy stuff just because... I don't know how much you know about lakes, but they like stratify in the summer and winter. Um, so basically in the spring and fall, uh, there's a lot of mixing going on because the weather is changing so abruptly, like it's going from cold to hot. So density of water changes with how cold it is. So when your water is heating up or cooling down, it mixes a lot and cold water is more dense than hot water. So it'll sink to the bottom. So you'll get this rotation of mixing. So your lake won't be stratified. It'll be like all the pH and specific conductivity and metals will be the same from the top all the way to the bottom. But in the summer and the winter, specifically in the summer, um, temperatures are usually really, really hot. So the water isn't mixing as much and it's usually not as windy in the summer compared to spring and fall. So your lake will actually stratify where you'll have what's called a thermocline. So you'll have hotter water on top. And as you decrease, 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 the water gets colder as you move to the bottom. And there'll be a point, a line generally, where you'll be like, temperature will be like 17 degrees, 17, 17, 17, 17. Then you'll hit the thermocline and it'll just drop abruptly. And generally below the thermocline, you have very, very low oxygen levels. Um, so you won't find like animals down there because they can't breathe. 
So all the like fish and stuff will be above the thermocline, hanging out in like the hot water, loving their life. Um, and then below the thermocline is like oxygen depleted, cold water, um, that sort of thing. So that's kind of the death zone. Yeah, pretty much the death zone. Yeah. <laughs> and this only happens. Well, this primarily happens in the summer. It happens in the summer and the winter. Oh, when the temperatures yeah. are stable. Yeah. When temperatures are stable and there's not a lot of mixing occurring okay. in the and lakes. That, and that's called stratifying. Stratification, yeah. Stratification of a lake, yeah. is when it's still. Yep. So then you're up high, then you have that thermal Thermocline. Thermocline, yeah. and then it can just be death zone. Death zone below. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. So it's neat because we'll have this little like meter and we drop it meter or this measuring parameter thing, I guess. Um, so we'll measure every single meter of the lake. So if we have a 40 meter lake, we take a measurement at every single meter. And so you can watch it kind of as it happens. And you'll just see like this curve where it's just like, and then it just drops. Oh. It's pretty neat. Yeah. So you're sending this thermometer down? It's like a probe. So it measures pH, dissolved oxygen, specific conductivity, um, oxygen reduction, in temperature. In real time. Yeah. And then you just measure it every meter you're seeing a different reading yeah so we mark all that down what makes it so you need to know all these readings at the certain levels kind of just like we want to monitor what's happening in the entire lake so say if we just measured the top of the lake we wouldn't necessarily know if anything was affecting the bottom of the lake so we'll even take samples like um, during summer we'll usually take a sample above the thermocline and below the thermocline to compare well in spring and fall we usually just take one like kind of a composite of the entire lake itself yeah because it's already mixing yeah oh. and when you're doing this this is from a boat it's from a boat it's very fun because the, the waves are <laughs> if the waves are rocking and our anchor's not strong enough it's very chaotic and we're just like flying all over the place <laughs> while trying to do all the science stuff <laughs> honestly the worst thing happened last summer my coworker were out on this lake and it was super windy but it was our last day and it was our last lake to do and our anchor was not strong enough for the boat and it was like a 30 or 40 meter deep lake so our anchor is just like barely holding on and the bottom was super sandy so it had nothing to catch on to but we have to measure we try to measure from the deepest part of the lake but literally every two minutes my boat would have drifted like 100 meters so every two minutes we had to keep pulling up the anchor boating back 100 meters and redoing it <laughs> and eventually we got so tired because the anchor's like 30 pounds and you're pulling it up and down 40 meters over and over again. So finally I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to try and boat with the anchor in. <laughs> but that was an awful idea. And the anchor got tangled in the motor. And then it was like, <laughs> it was absolute chaos on this boat. Um, so then I just gave up and I was like, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> How did so you it's, it's definitely a lot easier when it's like a nice sunny day with no wind. <laughs> What made it so you had to take the reading that day? Um, so it was a fly-in, fly-out camp. Um, so we only had a week to do, I think, nine lakes and or ten lakes. Um, and it was this lake in particular is just really hard to land on with the helicopter. And it just was a really windy wait lake. Like so we kept waiting for like a calm day, but just that whole week didn't have a calm day. So finally it was like the last day, and we were like, okay, we just have to do it. Um, but it was just yeah, it was chaotic. <laughs> oh, so you had you were on the wire then that last you, final day. Yeah, final day we had to do it, and yeah, it was 
I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's one of the, the worst one of the parts. struggles of field work is that you cannot control the weather. Yeah. When you're up there, what's a nice location you've been to? Oh, it's beautiful all up there. Yeah, the whole place up there is really, really nice. It's most of it is in the Canadian Shields. So you have all these like rocky outcrops of just like beautiful rocks, and then you're in the boreal forest. So all the trees, and then you have these lakes that no one else is on, and it's just so peaceful. Honestly, it's like a nature lover's dream up there. <laughs> How do you handle it when you have to come back to society? Um, I know I'm going back up in a week, so <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> It sounds like you enjoy it up there more than here. I do. I do really love it up there. It's it's peaceful. It's nice. There's no service, right? So you're completely disconnected from your phone until you get back to camp. And then there's like Wi-Fi. But it's nice because we work 11-hour days. So it's really nice for 11 hours to just be completely disconnected from society and just kind of breathe, I guess, and not have any outside influence. It's yeah. very meditative. It's like a nice break, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it sounds yeah. like it recenters you. It does. It does. I always come back from field season like burnt the hell out and very tired, but also like peaceful and happy. And then by the time winter's over, I'm like agitated and I need to get back out there. <laughs> so you know what works then. So right now I'm quite agitated. <laughs> <laughs> you can barely tell. I'm just waiting, waiting for field season to start up here. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite location you visited? Hmm. Uh, I mean, I do have a degree in geology, so I'm always excited to go somewhere uh, with really cool rocks. So I did go to go to, get to go to Uranium City last year, which was very cool. Um, it's pretty much like the Chernobyl of Canada. Not quite because there wasn't like a big nuclear reactor explosion or anything, um, but it, it's like a town that's been completely abandoned. So you get to like walk around and you watch like nature retake the town, which is very cool to see. Uh, so that was cool. Generally, though, my favorite places are where the camps have good food because <laughs> after an 11-hour day, it's really nice to come back to like some really delicious food <laughs> that's waiting for you. Yeah. Uh, food yeah. does boost morale. It really does. How is Uranium City? How do you keep yourself safe there? Safe from... Radiation. Uh, so we have Geiger counters, uh, which tell us like the radiation levels. And generally, the town is quite safe. I mean, it is quite safe. Um they weren't mining in the town itself. So all the radioactive rocks in Uranium City itself are like far below the ground. Um, but if you go outside Uranium City, like two kilometers in any direction, uh, there's definitely radioactive rocks. But um, I think, I can't remember the exact dates. I think the mining all closed down in the 70s or 80s. Don't quote me on that. Maybe late 60s, sometime in there. Um, so they have filled in all the all the um, mine shafts and everything. Um, the government has been working to clean it up. So all the mine shafts are closed up right now, so you can't actually go inside any of them. And I would say 90% of the danger would be inside the mine shaft itself, where that's where the highest levels of radioactivity would be. But crazy, because they did start those mines, you know, early 1900s, and they didn't really realize at the time how bad <laughs> radioactive minerals were for you at the time so there's been a lot of uh linked cancer related incidences i would say to the miners who worked in those mine shops because they didn't know what to measure for at the time 
Uh, they didn't know it was bad for you. Like in the early 1900s, they thought radium and uranium could be used for medical purposes and would actually help people. So they were actually like, like for tumors and stuff, they would shoot you straight with radium or they would like implant radium into you because the radium would kill the tumor. But what they didn't realize is that it would kill the rest of your cells as well. So in the early 1900s, they thought these were a really good thing. Um, it wasn't until like 10, 20 years later where people started to get really sick and develop all these like problems that they were like, oh, hey, maybe these are dangerous materials and we shouldn't just be like breathing and hanging out around them and like touching them with our hands. <laughs> live and real. learn, live and learn. <laughs> yeah, good realization and not take that rock home from the mine. I may have done that. <laughs> <laughs> fine though I keep it I keep it safe you know I don't I don't let I don't let other people touch it (laughs) what's an interesting rock from your perspective uh not quartz as any of my friends well maybe not but um I hate quartz quartz is the most abundant mineral on the planet and people are always like oh my god quartz and it's healing properties no quartz is boring (laughs) I hate quartz (laughs) what's an exciting mineral uh, anything else besides quartz? Uh, I don't know anything that you can just like when you're up north, I guess, or anywhere around a volcano and you see some mineral that's like not common, I guess would be really exciting. Um, I have like blue mineral rocks from copper mines, which are really cool. And I have yellow sulfate from the top of volcanoes and I don't know. Talk is really cool. Like You've been of, to the top of a volcano? I've been to the top of many volcanoes. Inactive. <laughs> no active. It's kind of scary, but it's fun. <laughs> How'd you get up there? What's, what's this process? Uh, I hiked to the top of them. <laughs> <laughs> I used to want to be a volcanologist, actually, once upon a time. Um, but you have to be have a PhD to be a volcanologist, and I wasn't dedicated enough. So <laughs> now I just hike volcanoes as a hobby. Not a bad trade. Not a bad trade. There's still, you know, you still get to go up there. You still get to look at things. Um, so it's all good. <laughs> yeah. When you're up north and isolated, mm-hmm. how do you maintain a connection with people around you there? Like? Like, how do you guys communicate? Because there's no cell service. Um. So a lot of times we get dropped off in very remote locations with just two of us. Um. So we have satellite phones, obviously. If something goes wrong, we can call for help. Uh, and we also have in-reach devices which connect to the satellites so we can send messages through them if we need be, but we don't really use them unless it's like a problem or we need to like contact the helicopter pilot. That's pretty much the only time we really use them would be emergencies or to contact the pilot to come get us. Um, so we are safe. Like <laughs> there are <laughs> means of communication if we do need to be rescued. Uh, we just don't usually use them because currently I haven't had to be rescued yet. So oh, nice. that's good. Yeah. So you're getting dropped off by helicopters. Uh, sometimes. It depends on the project. Some of the places we go have like roads. So we would ATV to the lakes and then set up our boats and boat across them. Um, but in some of the newer exploration areas that don't have roads developed yet. Yeah, we get heli dropped, which is super fun and super cool. And I love helicopter work. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you love about the helicopter work? Uh, helicopters are just really cool. You can like hover, right? (laughs) Which is neat. It's a lot more, it feels 
I don't know, almost like you're a bird. <laughs> like planes go so fast and they're just like zooming through the sky, right? And then helicopters, you can just hover in the air and just like chill. You don't have to move. It's very cool. Yeah. How are you getting dropped off with these helicopters? Um, so we actually sling our boats first. So we would like wrap our boat and all the equipment in a net. And then the helicopter would sling the boat to the lake and drop it for us. And then they would come back. We'd get in the helicopter. They would try and land somewhere. But again, there's no roads. There's no helipads. So we usually just get dropped in like the biggest clearing of trees we can find. And then we usually have to hike in to get our boat and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of an adventure trying to find your boat and getting across all this like untouched land um and then when we want to switch lakes we wrap up the boat again and then the helicopter comes we connect it to the bottom of the helicopter A helicopter drops it at the next lake and then they come back pick us up drop us to the next lake it's a lot of fun it's a lot it's fun but it's very exhausting <laughs> it's a lot of work like dragging a boat loading a boat unloading a boat loading the motor, unloading the motor, wrapping up the boat, slinging the boat, coming back for us, getting the call. <laughs> probably, it's probably like two to three hours of work to switch lakes of just unloading everything, wrapping it up, loading it back up, slinging it across, and, and then, then coming back for us. <laughs> yeah, It's a two-step process. <laughs> it is. And it's kind of funny because um, like when you're with your boat, you have all your like safety gear and like all your equipment, right? Um, and then when they take the boat, you're just left there. So <laughs> you're just like sitting there. We usually keep our field bag on us. So we'll have like, you know, our lunches and our communication devices and water. But if something happened between like the boat moving and them coming to get us, <laughs> we really wouldn't have much stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what, so you don't have a first aid kit in this bag? Uh, yeah, we usually have a first aid kit too. All right. Yeah. <laughs> But we usually, like, we carry around survival gears and stuff. And usually we put those in the boat. <laughs> so this guy's taking everything. So the guy's taking everything in the boat and just leaving us there. And we just hang out with our day bags and our bear spray and <laughs> wait for him to come back for us. <laughs> and you have to stay in that same location. Then. Yeah, because he has to find us, obviously. Uh, yeah, I think last year someone went out and... The helicopter was having some issues and I think they had to wait for like six hours for the helicopter to come back and pick them up. <laughs> but it was like a nice sunny day, you know, 20 degrees, throw on a lake, no big deal. Go for a little swim. Yeah. Easy. Okay. Yeah. Hang out. As you long, know? <laughs> as long as weather's cooperating, we're all Yeah. Good. Yeah. It's a different story if it's like storming and <laughs> the helicopter can't come get you and you're like, oh no. <laughs> so the helicopter drops the boat off at the lake for you. Yep. And then you get dropped off somewhere else. And how are you finding the boat? Uh, so we carry around our GPSs. So we'll have our lakes pre-planned. And we generally fly around with the pilot first to kind of find a landing spot. Um, and then we'll tell him where to drop the boat. And then he'll try and drop us as close as, us, as close as possible to the boat as he can get us, basically. But there's not usually a lot of options. Like sometimes we'll do like three flybys of this lake. And we're just like, we have no idea where to drop the boat and us because there's no clearing big enough for the helicopter to land so sometimes on rare occurrence they'll drop us like a kilometer from the lake and we'll have to go in and like make a helicopter <laughs> pad basically like we'll have to cut down trees so that the pilot can actually land at the lake wait so he'll drop you a kilometer out where it's 
flatter. Yeah. So there's a lot of outcrops, like rocky outcrops. Um, so he'll drop us like on one of those and then we'll hike in, cut down the trees, make a clearing so that he can drop the boat because we can't drag a boat a kilometer through the forest, obviously. Um, so we'll like cut down trees, make a heli landing spot for him to get in and then it's chaos. <laughs> yeah. But it's fun. So what's the process of making a heli landing pad from scratch? Um, well, we're not allowed to use chainsaws. Um, so basically we get saws and axes and we just <laughs> try and find somewhere that's already kind of cleared. So obviously we don't just want to like cut down 50 trees, right? That'd be exhausting. Um, so we'll try and find like the clearest spot we can that maybe has like four or five trees in it that are kind of in the way. So then we'll just have to cut those down and kind of like clear out the bushes and stuff. And yeah, again, I've only had to do this like three times. <laughs> usually, <laughs> usually we can find a spot. <laughs> <laughs> but if not, you're doing it by hand. If not, we're doing it by hand. Yeah. One time, actually, we cut down all these trees and I tried to make like a helipad for the helicopter. Like I laid out the like logs and stuff so we could have a nice landing thing. And he like radioed me and he's like, you got to move those. That looks like <laughs> that looks like crap. And I was like, <laughs> he's like, I'm just going to land on the ground instead. And I was like, OK. <laughs> Did not appreciate it. No, he didn't appreciate my effort. That's fine. <laughs> How does the boat not float away when he gets when he drops it off? So they drop the boat on land, but they'll try and get it as close to the lake as possible um, because like all of our equipment's on it and we can't fly it with the motor on. So we put the motor inside the boat. We put all of our equipment in the boat and then he flies the boat, drops it like a meter from the shoreline basically. And then when we get there, we have to unload it, drag it the last meter to the water and then set up the motor, load it all back in with our gear again and then take off. What's the roughest time you've had to get to a boat? So this one lake, it wasn't bad. Like there was no trees or anything, um, which was nice. So there's a lot of spots to land and a lot of places to drop the boat. But from the air, it's really hard to tell how wet an area is. So he dropped the boat in basically a muskeg. And then he, when he went to drop us off, he was like, oh, it's really wet. So he had to like hover to let us out, which is fine. But when you step out, you just like sink, right? So we're trying to, you have to like walk through a muskeg and with every step you're sinking to your knees and then you get to your boat and it has, you know, 700 pounds of gear in it. So you're trying to unload this while sinking into the muskeg and then you have to drag the boat like three meters into the water itself, but you're dragging it through muskeg. <laughs> um, and then again, you have to carry all your gear through the muskeg, try and get a motor on while you're sinking <laughs> into like mud and dirt and plants uh so that sucked and then that same day it was like our last lake of the day so we were like oh we'll just leave it here overnight but what we didn't account for is that sometimes with these boats they lose air overnight um so the boat lost air and filled with water <laughs> from the muskeg <laughs> So then when we got back in the morning, it was like all flooded. So we had to unload it again, drain the boat, get all the water out, load it back up and then get the pilot to come take it. And it was, it took hours. It took like four hours. Lesson learned. Don't leave <laughs> Oh my God. Don't leave your boat in a muskeg. Lesson learned. <laughs> so what's a, what's a muskeg? Muskeg. Uh, I'm not a plant biologist, but it's basically just like kind of like floating plants on top of water. Like you could definitely sink through, but it's it's very thick, so it's a ton of vegetation, but it's like half floating, half on soil. 
So it's basically just like when you step in it, you sink a lot because it's plants mixed with water, mixed with dirt. Oh, muskeg is a plant that you're standing No, muskeg is not a plant. Muskeg is like a type of wetland kind of. Um, but it's just like, that's how you would describe it, is that it's a mix of like vegetation, plants, water, soil. But it's just very, it's not solid ground. Okay. It's not like a beach or like solid earth, right? Or a rock. It's just a mix of dirt, water, and plants together that's not solid. So when you step on it, you sink. Basically, okay. so it's, 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 it's super thick liquid with the dirt. Basically, and the plant viscous, viscous <laughs> water. <laughs> so it sucks to walk through. Yeah. Yeah. So, what have you learned from doing things up north? Uh, I learned there's no way you can prepare for everything. <laughs> no. It's funny because it's like you're out there and they give us, you know, you have all these safety communication devices and you go in with a plan, but like, Fieldwork never goes to plan. Like you'll have a plan and then something will happen. Like your pilot will drive your boat into a tree and pop it. And then suddenly you don't have a boat anymore. Or a thunderstorm will come on suddenly and you have to like hide under a tree for two hours until it clears out or there'll be a bear in the area. So you need to like wait or a forest fire will come and you'll have to evacuate. So, you know, you go in with these plans, but it never usually goes to plan because things always go wrong and you really can't predict weather and you can't predict nature and you can't predict pilots and their abilities and you can't predict bears. And <laughs> <laughs> so this is kind of the great adage that a plan is just a list of things that aren't going to happen. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> How do you adapt to these situations? Uh, I don't know. I think that's what makes people either love the field or hate the field. Like I've definitely worked with people in the field who, when things go wrong, they get very upset and it ruins their whole day. And you kind of have to ask yourself, like, if you're getting upset, are you cut out for field life basically? Cause you kind of just have to roll with it. Like if things go wrong as they do and they will every single day, something will go wrong. You just have to adapt and think on your feet and think, okay, what can we do instead? Or like, what can we do to mitigate this? Or what's our plan B? And if you can't think like that, you probably shouldn't be in the fields <laughs> because it's going to happen every single day and you're going to be really miserable. <laughs> what's something you've had to adapt to that's memorable? Uh, I mean, the muskeg thing was memorable. The pilot flying my boat into a tree did happen, so... We had like a big blow up boat and then we had this, what we call a baby zode, which is just like this little one that we don't put a motor on and we just kind of like paddle it around. Um, so that like we had this plan to do all these lakes with our big Zodiac blow up boat. And then once he punctured it, we had to patch it, but you have to let the patch dry for 24 hours at least. So we were like, okay, what do we do now? So we literally got out our baby zode and we paddled around these lakes trying to do our work. <laughs> So, you know, you just adapt. It's fine. Got a good arm workout. It was good. Get some gains. <laughs> <laughs> you have such a great attitude when it comes to field work. I think it's just because I love being out there. I mean, there's definitely times when I also get frustrated. I mean, you're in the sun or rain for 11 hours a day. You can't go back and like warm up or take a break. I mean, I have naps in the muskeg sometimes because it's kind of cozy. It's very soft. Um, <laughs> but I mean, people definitely get frustrated. I think the difference is that if you can be frustrated but still get the work done and still have a positive attitude or you get frustrated and get mad and want to go home. That's the difference. So 
Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah. How do you stay positive through it all? I don't think it's that hard to stay positive for me personally because I just love being out there so much. Like I'll definitely be like kicking my boat and swearing at it when it's being like frustrating. Um, but it's hard to be mad for too long when, you know, like I said, you're out on these beautiful lakes in nature. There's no other pressing issues. It's just you fixing a boat. Um, and also all my coworkers, they're absolutely fantastic. So, you know, when we're all angry, we just kind of joke around and do the best we can. (laughs) (laughs) So good team with a good attitude combined with a great environment. You're there too. Absolutely. (laughs) What do you guys do to keep morale up? I don't know, lunch breaks. (laughs) Food is always good. You can tell when your coworkers are getting hangry, that's for sure. And then sometimes you're like, hmm. And time goes by so fast when you're up there that sometimes you'll miss lunch. And then you can always tell when you've missed lunch because people start to get grumpy. And then you're like, oh, it's 2 p.m. We should probably stop for a lunch break. And then we eat and everyone gets happy. Um, Singing and dancing is good. one of my coworkers and I tried to make YM do the YMCA in photos with the shadows. That was fun. Um, we try and play songs with leaves, you know, those like grasses, you know, those thick grasses. You can like blow in them and they oh, make yeah. that like whistle. Yeah. Yeah. We tried to play like Christmas tunes with those. Uh, I don't know. Just whatever. Yeah. You pretty much just goof off and hang out. <laughs> yeah. Find a frog, hang out with the frog for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> what are you packing for lunch? Uh, depends on the mine. So again, the mines usually provide us all of our meals because we don't want to cook after 11 hours of field work, obviously. Um, sandwiches, wraps, leftover pasta, leftover dinner from the night before, uh, granola bars, fruits, just whatever. Oh, just easy camp food. Ooh, Nothing. baking. Camps make so many baked goods. So we usually have like a ton of brownies or cake that really keeps morale up. There's nothing like pulling out your brownie when you've been in the rain for three hours and <laughs> that generally cheers people up food hot just, chocolate tea coffee mm. yeah food just tastes better when you've struggled for it it really does it really does <laughs> <laughs> what's been your toughest day at work Ooh, i don't know i think <laughs> my toughest day was probably like my first week at my new company. Well, I'll, I'll say from this company because my last jobs, they were too long ago to remember. Um, yeah, my boss wanted to like test me and she's awesome. Um, but she made me carry like all the equipment through the forest because <laughs> she wanted to see if I'd be like frustrated, angry or frustrated, but like, okay. <laughs> so I think it was a test. So I was like carrying all this equipment through a forest with like burnt down trees. So I was like tripping over logs like every. <laughs> two feet and like falling and dropping stuff and then when we finally got to the lake she's like welcome to the company <laughs> you made like, it through the gauntlet yeah i was like you were awful <laughs> she's like i'll help you carry it back and i was like wow thank you so much <laughs> when did you realize it was a test i don't think it was a test as much as like she just wanted to see if i I don't know, handle it well or not. <laughs> I'm still here, so I guess I did. Yeah. Do you want to see what you're made of? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I think I think they do want to see if people can handle field life or not. So, What helps you handle field life? Um, I don't know, positive attitude and snacks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you need to be able to handle field life? Positive attitude and snacks. <laughs> no. And good coworkers, I guess. I don't know. I used to work with this guy. 
And he said he loved field work. He was like, oh, I really want to be in the field. I just love it so much. And then every single day, I had never seen someone so angry, like over the smallest inconveniences. Like if we had to walk through a muskeg for like 10 meters, he would just be so angry. And I honestly, it was like, are you sure this is the job you want? Because he was young. He was like 21. And he's like, yeah, this is the life. And I was like, like, this is, you could be here for 20 years. I was like, are you sure <laughs> this is what you want? Because you're very upset right now. <laughs> so I think you need to be honest with yourself, you know, if you can actually handle it and you do enjoy it, or if you just want to pretend you enjoy it because you like to say, you know, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You can't lie to yourself on that. You really can't. Uh, what do you do to recharge when you're in the city? Um, so my summer this year is gonna be pretty hectic. I think I have like five five weeks of work straight with only four days off in between the weeks. Um, so my plan currently is bikes and beers. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna go to the field for two weeks, come home for four days, drink a lot of beer, do a lot of biking, and then go back to the field. <laughs> for another three weeks. For another three weeks, yeah. It's going to be great. Maybe I'll see a friend or two for beers and bikes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, when you don't have a lot of time, you have to combine them. You really do, yeah. Maybe we can drink beer while biking with friends, three in one. Totally. 100%, yeah. yeah. <laughs> with a hydration pack. Absolutely. <laughs> Just throw some wine in the hydration pack and away we go. <laughs> so how do you cope with not being in the field during the winter? Uh, it's really hard. I I really don't do well with desk jobs. I think I am not cut out to just stare in front of a screen for long periods of time. But um, perks of my job are that we work so much in the summer, we get a ton of overtime in the winter. So actually, I just realized, don't tell my company this, but <laughs> I haven't worked a full 40-hour week since December. <laughs> Suckers. I have so much overtime and it'll be like, oh, it's Friday. Hmm, I'm just going to leave early or like, I'll be like, ah, I'm pretty tired today. I'm just going to go home and have a nap. <laughs> I think I usually average like 35 hours a week because, yeah, I just am like, hmm, pretty tired gonna head home <laughs> yeah well you stacked up enough hours during yeah. the summer. when you work so much in the summer too i think it's deserved that you get a bit of a break in the winter so no one really minds <laughs> yeah so you get the perk of taking that extra five to eight hours off absolutely so when you're testing for mine things mm -hmm. what happens if the levels aren't right <laughs> we'd have to have a discussion with the mine then so everything's pretty regulated with the mining industry in Canada. Um, so we have to write big reports on it and we have to do monitoring for like, as long as the mine is open, they're doing monitoring on everything out there. Um, so if something was wrong, we would write it in our reports. It would go to both the mine and the government and then they'd put a plan in action to mitigate it. So they either change how they're processing it or they would change where they're um, using the water, where they're putting the water, where they're putting the effluent, that sort of thing. So you have a lot of say in what they can or cannot do. Uh, I wouldn't really say that. I, <laughs> the mining, we're not really in charge of what the mine does. We do the assessments. We do the environmental assessments. We let them know what the levels are. Um, we write in our reports. We can give them recommendations, but generally it's up to them and the government, I would say, what actually happens. Ooh, how often do you have to check the levels? What do you mean? For around a mine. 
Um, so water quality, we generally do three to four sampling events a year. So we would do spring, summer, fall, and winter just because um, different chemicals happen in different um, seasons. Um, plants and wildlife are much less frequent. At the beginning of a the mine, they do like a whole suite of analytical like they'll check for birds and plants and invasive species and archaeology and they'll check for absolutely everything if you want to open a mine you have to have a full environmental assessment done to make sure like to figure out your baseline levels um so basically like what's happening in the environment before a mine opens and then after that we continue monitoring to make sure basically to compare how the environment is now to what it was before the mine opened so that's also how we can tell if the mine's having an impact like if you had a bunch of caribou going through that area pre-mine and then suddenly the caribou are diverting then you know you're having an impact on wildlife in the area right or um (laughs) I don't do this because I'm not a wildlife biologist but they actually like test the poop of a lot of animals um, because you can test for chemicals in it and tell like so say uranium right is going into the plants and then the animals are eating that plant and then the animals are getting uranium in their bodies we test for that to make sure like they're healthy basically because it gets concentrated because they're eating so much yeah and it can affect them so they yeah we do a whole baseline before a mine can start and then they i don't know how often wildlife and plants are monitored but hydrology is usually monitored three times a year um until the mine closes so you're not the only department getting baselines no so like we have a new baseline this year so we'll be doing water climate um yeah wildlife archaeology plants birds community so we talk to the indigenous communities in the area and get their opinion on things see what they want um we did a big one last year where we actually had a ton of community engagement and we took out people from the indigenous communities nearby and we actually interviewed them and they came out with us and they did the work with us and they gave us their opinion on like how they feel about the mine opening, which was really cool. Uh, So we have a whole community division that does that. Um, Fish, aquatic division, they measure so much stuff about the fish. I don't know. I don't do aquatics. I don't like touching fish. So (laughs) (laughs) So you just do the water and then they do the the things that live in the water. So we have a different department for everything. Yeah. So I focus on water and sometimes I'll help out with other departments if they need help, but I don't really like touching fish. So (laughs) I (laughs) avoid doing it. (laughs) Makes sense. There's a lot that goes into opening a mine then. There is so much that goes into opening a mine and that's just the environmental side. So... Yeah, it's kind of crazy how many mines there are in Saskatchewan alone because like so much work goes into it. Yeah. How long does this work usually take for all the departments? Uh, I don't know. It can take years. Like there's some mines like the Diamond Mine by PA has been (laughs) trying to open for like decades and still hasn't. So, you know, some of them don't. Um, But to open, you do have to have an environmental baseline done. Um, So sometimes we'll do a full environmental baseline and then the mine will decide actually it's not viable to open a mine there because there's not enough of the ore they want. And so then they won't even open, (laughs) but they've paid for like (laughs) the entire baseline, right? That's a huge gamble. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Yeah. But usually it's like huge mining companies who have been doing this for a while. So they're like, ah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We might have a Reward and risk, you know. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Well, should we call it? Yeah.